Shaken Blake presents The Harvest of Kairos and the City at the Edge of the World. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Shake and Blake here on Earth2.net and GeekPlanetOnline.com. I'm Dave Probert and joining me as ever is Mr. Ian Wilson. Hello, sir. Why, hello there to you, Dave, and indeed to all of our many single-digit listeners. <laughs> well, uh, those astute members of you will have noticed that there was no episode in April. Mm. Uh, this is mainly because my computer died on its ass. The, the motherboard burnt out, I had to get a new motherboard, I've had to get a new operating system, and it's been a bit of a hellish computer month, unfortunately. But, we're good to go now. Huzzah. Ready to dive in. Now, uh, before we dive into the feedback, I just thought I'd uh, mention a couple of shout-outs. Okay. The first is that we've uh, acquired a, a medical celebrity listener. A celebrity listener? Well, the, a, a medical celebrity listener. Don't downplay Ooh. the medical side of things. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Dr. Stuart Flanagan from Radio One Sunday Surgery, where children phone in to speak about their maladies and mm. uh, which bits of them are unwell. <laughs> but it turns out that Dr. Stuart is a big Blake 7 fan, and thanks to a uh, friend of the podcast, Mr. Tom Elliott, who uh, pointed him in our direction, he's now... Uh, Last episode, he said he listened to was our episode on Breakdown. All right. And he's currently having a bit of a rewatch of season two, and he's up to trial, I think, at the moment. Good, good. And he does also agree that the web is shit, so he <laughs> he can stay. Yes. We'll allow we like that. him. Yeah. Well, in return, I'll start listening to the Sunday surgery. Yes. <laughs> Be- because last I heard, Kelly Osborne was doing it. All right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if, when you get round to listening to this episode, hello, Dr. Stewart. Yes, hello, Dr. Stewart. <laughs> and uh, also, I'd like to give a little shout-out to uh, the Time Vault podcast, who are a lovely couple of guys, uh, Paul and Michael, two brothers, and they uh, rewatch, um, they're re-watching Hammer films and episodes of Doctor Who, but they're also rewatching Blake 7, periodically. What? Yes. That's... That's our turn. <laughs> Back off. But yeah, they've only covered like the first six episodes of season one. All right. But uh, if you fancy checking out a, a much less sweary version of what we do, <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, certainly give them a listen. Oh, we have an explicit tag. We do, yes. Guilty as charged. People know what they're getting into. <laughs> Although that language about the caliph from our last episode... Was entirely justified. (laughs) True enough. So, should we dip into the mailbag? Yes. He said like this was Saturday Superstore. (laughs) 
I'm too young to know what you're talking about. Quiet you. But <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine we've got quite a plethora of emails now that we've uh, had a two-month break, essentially. Oh, man alive, it's stocked up. <laughs> well, we've got some feedback from the orgs for later on, which we'll get to. Uh, but we also have an email from Gareth Edwards, who's sent us feedback for the actual episodes. But he also says, uh, Hi guys, how goes the 24-7 therapy after seeing Dawn of the Gods? <laughs> well, it, it, it killed my computer. computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree it was horrid Web 2.0 episode, but I did say that in feedback in the last email, but know that Rage, Time and Caliph probably stopped it. Yes, he did send feedback to Dawn of the Gods, but in, in my apoplectic rage, I completely forgot it was there. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Because <laughs> that's the thing, we didn't have very much to say about that episode. Yes, so. it would have been nice to have had a balanced calm appraisal of it, but, but no. We right? used all the help we could have got. <laughs> anyway, back to feedbacking on the next two episodes and failing to check any spelling or grammar. Gareth. He says, P.S. Here are some cards I can imagine might belong in Space Monopoly. Uh, you were caught doing standard by 14 in a standard by 6 zone. Pay 2,000 Federation credits to, or take a chance. Space City, property rents 200. If two cities are owned, 400. If three owned, 600. If four owned, 1,000. Your fleet is in disrepair and must pay 200 per pursuit ship and 500 per battlecruiser for the, your own repairs. You have been found guilty of crimes against the Federation. Go straight to Cygnus Alpha. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 Federation credits. And his personal favourites. You are possessed by weird aliens from Aaron's past who wish to pair bond with you. Miss one turn as you try to escape. <laughs> and you have come second in a cosplay Travis competition. You win 100 <laughs> Federation credits. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. I won't allow Space Monopoly in general, but I will allow that. So, thank you for that, Gareth. Yes. And we'll get to your feedback later on. And we have an email from Stefan Sornock from the Martins yeah. Are Here podcast. And he says, Hi, David, Ian. Hello, Ian and Dave. Ah, diplomatic. Absolutely. Uh, I was led to believe a year or so ago that you were creating a podcast on Blake 7. Imagine my surprise when I discovered this was nothing more than a clever ruse to introduce long-dead popular culture from the 70s into modern vernacular. Now, I struggled <laughs> enough with my kids using like and same as a complete sentence and rolled their eyes at me every time I request a noun. Not to mention the SMS-shortened words like M8 and the unforgivable abuse of the word awesome. <laughs> Flying in the face I'm, of this mass... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm guilty of that last one. Oh, God, me too. <laughs> Flying in the face of this mass genocide of, of a dictionarial scale, Inride messes Proberton Wilson, adding such terms as pair bonding right in the Megat, cosplay Travis, <laughs> speed mincing, and the web is shit, to name but a few. As a suggestion, when you hit the end of your series, you should do a segment similar to The Who Count that identifies the season that has managed to add the most references to modern popular culture. God bless 1970s sci-fi. It may yet be the saviour of our language. Can't help but feel you're overestimating our contributions <laughs> to modern popular culture there, Stefan. <laughs> and our wide fan base. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do disagree 
On his day's explanation of ORAC accessing the system being due to all computers evolving to similar use technology of the Tariel cell. The system is way more developed than the Federation, as evidenced by the fact that the Liberator not only eats pursuit ships for breakfast, but even takes on a whole invading army alone and survives, albeit with the odd dint to the fender. Okay, so the inside of the system looks like something from a 1970s British utility, and their guards are shit, but when it comes down to it, they have developed a long way further on the humans. There is no real evidence on what we have seen that they would have to be reliant on anything like the Tariel cell. Okay, so for plot contrivance, it's right up there with the fact that many alien species look remarkably human and speak English, even when they have had, haven't had contacts ever. It is, however, selling Aurak short. Aurak is not just another computer. Why would they need a second Zen? Aurak is essentially a sentient being complete with his own personality, emotions, and most importantly, capacity to learn. Aurak is also not bound by human limitations when it comes to speed of learning. It is far more plausible that Aurak faced with a challenge break into an alien computer system, and having an ego of his own, and a reputation to maintain, having made the prediction, will fo likely find a way like Villa to do some serious jailbreaking. As a character, I always felt Aurak was undervalued by everyone other than Avon. All too often, Aurak was recognised for his intelligence gathering, rather than the fact that he could not only gather information, but provide fully reasoned analysis, as opposed to Zen, who was limited in his analysis by his programming. This is, of course, just geeks arguing over the unknown. <laughs> who, know exact, who knows exactly what was in the writer's head, seeing as he is no longer with us. But for me, after Avon, Aurak was my favourite character, and in any of my schoolboy picking of a team of sci-fi characters to do battle, the Liberator, Avon and Aurak would always be my first three choices. Bugger the Enterprise, lightsabers or commander data, I would have Aurak any day. Cheers, gents, and keep up the good work, Stefan. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you, Stefan, but even you have got to admit that in Dawn of the Gods, well, yeah. now, now that I know there's a non-sweary version of what we do. <laughs> but but they're way off getting to that. Oh, well, in that case, Aurak is an absolute rotter. <laughs> way to earn that explicit tag, Mr. Wilson. <laughs> and against... There's time yet. <laughs> Again, Stefan has sent us feedback for the episodes themselves as well. So, and we'll get to that when the time comes. So, that's uh, three for the Geek Planet Inbox. Three. Three. Yeah. Well, I'm only one behind you this month. Oh, so excellent. Not too bad. Not too bad not too at bad. all. Uh, in that case, the first email comes in from Graham, who sent us an email with our last episode. And he says... I enjoyed your last podcast very much, and I had to laugh when you mentioned about how Paul Darrow would look wearing Speedos, looking how he does now. Yeah. But it also, <laughs> it also reminded me that the last time I saw Paul Darrow grace our TV screens, it was a couple of years ago, and he was doing an advert for mobility scooters. Yeah, that yeah. sort of broke my heart when I saw that. Yeah, you see, I've seen that as well. And the, the thing about it is, though, because it's Paul Darrow, he makes that sinister. <laughs> There's even one bit where he looks straight down the corner and goes, and if you apply now, you will get a three-second kind of scooter. One that folds up into your car. <laughs> Just, Jesus. <laughs> That's 
going to terrify some potential customers. Uh, anyway, Graham goes on to say, It was quite a strange sight to see an older version of the man who I always think of as Avon getting onto a mobility scooter and driving it around a shopping centre. Pretty much. Yes, Pretty uh, much. no argument <laughs> for me. Now, as promised, the lowdown on the Dutch DVD releases of Blake 7. Hey! Yes, indeed. It's been three months coming. <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned before, they are simply no frills releases and do not contain any extras or audio commentaries. They come with Dutch subtitles that are easily turned off. The first DVD series has a nice menu screen which shows the yellow animated 2D Liberator from Season 1 and Season 2's opening titles flying through space, which is quite nice. The front and back covers show a few publicity pictures of the main cast and various stills from various episodes from Season 1, including the priestess from Cygnus Alpha, and for prisoners from the London walking around the planet's surface. So far, so good. The Season 2 release is a little bit odd presentation-wise. The menu screen shows a view of space from the bridge-slash-cockpit of an identifiable spaceship. I'm not quite sure which spacecraft this is supposed to be, whether it's the Liberator or a Federation ship. And we then see the faces of the original crew appear in the starfield in silhouette form. As all this is going on, the spaceship's view screen is rocking from side to side. The cover of the DVD shows no pictures from Series 2 at all. <laughs> and instead shows a priest and priestess from Cygnus Alpha again. Right. The, the prisoners roaming around the planet's surface from the same episode. Okay. A picture of Dana, Callie, Avon and Villa playing Galactic Monopoly from Season 3. Right. <laughs> and a picture of the Decimus from the <laughs> web. Which Bail. was shit. <laughs> so, so, just to recap there, Dave. We get Dana and Space Monopoly from Season 3. And we get the web. And we get Cygnus Alpha from Season 1. It, it, it's not a great way to market it to people, is it? <laughs> so they didn't actually put in any market research. Oh, I mean, were. maybe the Dutch loves Space Monopoly. Space Monopoly is very big <laughs> in Holland. Right. Something to do in the cafes. Yes. Yeah, dear. Well, Season 3 gets worse. Oh, dear. The, yeah. The menu screen is the same as Season 2, so it still shows Blake, Jenna and Gan, who by now are no longer with us. The same scenes from Cygnus Alpha and the web are on the front and back covers, plus a close-up of Blake from Season 1. <laughs> that's, that's pretty poor. Altogether. Season 4 DVD has exactly the same menu screen and photographs on the front and back, and thrown in for good measure is a picture of the original career, including Zen from Season 1. <laughs> oh well, bye for now. Best wishes, Graham. P.S. 
Going back to my comments about Blake 7 and Minder. Oh, here we go. Good Lord. In the new version of Minder, Shane Ritchie played Arthur Daly's nephew named Archie Daly. Arthur was never seen and only ever mentioned once, right at the end of the failed series, when Archie stated, If my uncle could see me now. David Jackson, i.e. Gan, appeared in the show three times, each time playing a different character, twice in the Terry McCann years, and once in the Ray Daly era. Yeah, you see, that that comes across as a bit like James Bond Jr. <laughs> I never understood why James Bond was called James Bond Jr. when he wasn't James Bond's son. <laughs> that was his uh, nephew. Well, so he says. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> You never know, do you? <laughs> That's already put he, a sinister put... twist on James Bond Jr. <laughs> yes. In in the same way that uh, Wilson is Pike's uncle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> PPS. Oh, right, okay. Yep. When you mentioned about Carry On Columbus not being part of a Carry On DVD box set, I had to chuckle. As a little while ago, UK Gold, as I still call it, screened a carry-on weekend, as they normally do on a bank holiday weekend. And the trailer advertising the event stated, All the classic and greatest carry-on films are here, and one of them was the dreaded carry-on Columbus. How this is classic or great, I don't know, as I personally think watching it is similar to going to see a bad tribute band. Yeah, so it's it's not good at all. <laughs> well, hopefully by the time I finish my Carry On scribbling series for Geek Planet Online in about ten years or so, <laughs> um, <laughs> I will have found a way to at least, out of morbid curiosity, watch Carry On Columbus. I'm hoping by the time you get that far, every copy will have been burnt. <laughs> we can only hope, but. I mean, if Jim Dale's the star, then it can't be all bad. It can. Okay, right. Well, I look forward to that. Because that was the thing, because normally you could take it by thumb. If a carry-on film's from the 50s, then it's really finding its feet. If it's from the 60s, it's probably going to be pretty good. If it's from the 70s, it's going to be bawdy rubbish. And then the 90s, there is no reason in God's name why there's a carry-on film in the 1990s. Exactly. Yeah. So, thank you very much for your email, Graham. Yes, thank you, Graham. Thanks for, for helping out the cause. And uh, joining him in this glorious cause uh, is Frando. Hello, Frando. Hello, Frando. And he indeed responds with, hi, Ian and Dave. So, hurrah for that. Since you all are always bemoaning the lack of feedback, I thought I would say some of us actually look forward to your efforts. (laughs) Thank you, Fernando. It's comforting to hear. We do worry. (laughs) Last month, I discovered my Season 3 DVDs were defective and had to order, here we go, a Dutch import copy from Amazon (laughs) UK. Just the Dutch have got the Blake 7 market sewn up! <laughs> and yet, they're, they're advertising that bit on, on the basis that they'll be able to see the web. <laughs> Which is shit. Uh, 
Just think, all that work just to see Dawn of the Gods again. There we go. If this isn't listener loyalty, I don't know what is. Well, quite. I am... no, I'll give you that, Fred. <laughs> I am really looking forward to hearing your comments on The City at the Edge of the World. Not only does it feature Villa getting laid, it also shows where Colin Baker got the idea for the crazy homicidal doctor he played in the first couple of episodes of The Twin Dilemma. Long live Earth 2 and Blake 7, your devoted fan, Frando. So thank you very much, Frando. Yes, thank you, Frando. Right, so that's uh, that's my two there. Excellent. Mm. Well, introductions aside, let's uh, sally forth into our first episode. Righto. Who is this man? Jarvik, Madam President. You requested... Jarvik? Of course. Jarvik. Jarvik, the construction worker. What was it now? Any fool could take the Liberator with three pursuit ships. Well, the Liberator will soon be diffusing itself throughout the galaxy as so many billion split particles. So, regrettably, we shall never know. Thanks to the folly of your president, who with her aides and her technical advisors, her battle computers and her captains, extravagantly disposed herself to use four pursuit ships. And yet any fool could have done it with three. Perhaps this particular fool will tell her how. Well, have you nothing to say to Servala? Woman, you're beautiful. Right, so our first episode is The Harvest of Kairos. This episode opens with Tarrant on the bridge of the Liberator, and Caddy's trying to call up uh, Avon Villa, who are on the surface of an unnamed planet. They're trying to get them back up because the Liberator is getting surrounded by pursuit ships. Tarrant has tracked two and believes that there's a third one out there somewhere. Meanwhile, on Space Command, Servalan is directing the the, uh, the attack, and her assistant Daster says that there's been talk below decks that uh, she's afraid of Tarrant, and one man called Jarvik has been going around saying that any fool with three pursuit ships could take the Liberator. <laughs> Servalan is greatly amused by this, and so asks Daster to fetch Jarvik to her. Back on the Liberator, Avon and Villa teleport back on board. Villa is less than happy having to go down at how cold it was. Uh, Avon has gone back and brought back a rock from the surface of this planet. They take it up to the bridge and Avon gets Zen to analyse it and Zen says it's a capacity-charged brain. Tarrant gets Zen to use the battle computers and say which is the only defensible exit out of the area. Uh, Zen tells him it's through Alpha Sector. Back at Space Command... Servalan is still directing traffic and is telling them to close off Alpha Sector because the Liberator is moving. But it turns out that the Liberator is moving through Delta Sector and is therefore escaped the trap. <laughs> At this point, what can only be described as pure concentrated testosterone in a jumpsuit yep. <laughs> is marched into Space Command Control Center. And this is Jarvik. Yep. Servalan was boasting to him that she could use um, four pursuit ships rather than any fool doing it with three. 
And when she says, do you have nothing to say to Servalan, he says simply, woman, you're beautiful. <laughs> Grabs her, snogs her, knocks out two security guards, and then ends up holding the entire room at gunpoint in the space of about 30 seconds. Awesome. Yes. With my apologies to Stefan. Sorry, Stefan, but Jarvik is awesome. Oh, he really is. <laughs> he then politely puts the gun down and says he, he's not here to uh, brawl with the security grade. And says that uh, the reason Tarrant escaped the trap is because Tarrant's got computers too, and they would have told him the same thing, but that means that Tarrant would, knew where the trap would be. And that Tarrant is a man. He thinks and acts like a man, not a machine. <laughs> Jarvik has a great deal of disdain for computers. Yes. And Jarvik says he knows where Tarrant is going next, and that he's going to the harvest of Kairos. Which is indeed what Tarrant's plan is. The Harvest of Kairos is a seven-day period on the planet Kairos, where a valuable crystal known as Kyropan can be collected. After that seven-day period, nobody knows what happens, but no one's ever lived to tell the tale. Obviously, everybody's a little bit worried about going down for this, if it's going to be dangerous, but that isn't Tarrant's plan. Tarrant's going to wait for them to load up the computer-controlled transport ship and then get the Liberator to essentially hijack that instead. So everybody's paying a great deal of attention to this plan, apart from Avon, who is too busy getting Aurak to scan the Sopron. <laughs> and Aurak says that it is a, a highly sophisticated machine, and it has a greater capacity for reasoning than Aurak does. Although it takes a great deal of time for Avon to extract the admission out of it. <laughs> because Aurak is dancing around, having to admit that there's something better than him out there. Yeah. So, the Liberator sets course for Kairos. Servalan speaks to Jarvik and says that... The, basically, they talk about Tarrant and how Tarrant isn't going to attack the fields, he's going to attack the transporter. And Jarvik explains that the reason that Tarrant knows so much about this is that the Kairopan transport ship was Tarrant's first command, and that he was Tarrant's superior officer, which is how he knows Tarrant. Servalan assumes he must have been a criminal at some point, because he's now working in construction, but when she goes to look up his record, it turns out it's been erased, and he's had it arranged, because he doesn't want to be part of the system anymore, because it's all sanitised, and <laughs> he goes on to attack Servalan's humanity. When was the last time you wept for the death of a friend, or felt the sun upon your naked back? <laughs> what is there left of you that feels... Servalan agrees to make to give Jarvik the assignment of capturing the Liberator and makes him acting major. She then says there's the matter of the degrading act she was subjected to, and that she'd like Jarvik to do it again. And at this point, Servalan fucks Jarvik. Yeah! There's no ambiguity about this. I mean, you don't actually see them going at it. But Literally, shag count one. Absolutely, there's no, <laughs> there's no other interpretation of events. Other than a whistle. Yep. That's the one. I should briefly explain. You probably uh, should. Be before I started doing Shake and Blake, uh, my podcasting career hinged upon uh, For Your Ears Only, which was Earth2.net's Bond film-themed uh, podcast, which I co-hosted with my insane friend, Adam Fisher. And we had two counts. One was for the number of people that Bond killed or was attributed to have killed, and uh, the other one was how many times he got his end away, 
the shag count. And uh, my co-host would always whistle uh, when we agreed, because we didn't always agree whether Bond got his rocks off or not. But rocks um, are definitely off here. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Adam even thought that Timothy Dalton's Bond never had sex. Wrong. Yeah, which is patently untrue. But anyway, carry on, sorry. Yes. <laughs> So, Jarvik is making plans to deal with Tarrant. Servalan has made three brand new Mark 10 pursuit ships available to him. And Jarvik ends up uh, contacting Captain Shad, who is in charge of the transporter. Now, Shad has already been in contact with Servalan and said that uh, the harvest has been better than expected, which means they haven't got enough room to carry all the Kyropan and the labour force. So he asks Servalan for permission to leave the excess Kyropan, to which point Servalan says, no, no, you're not doing that. You're going to abandon the workforce. Yeah. <laughs> so the workforce are left behind, and there's one guard who tries to lock them out and goes, oh, that's all right, there's another ship going to pick you up. And they go, but no one stays after the seventh day. And the guy goes, well, you'll die then, won't you? And sort of grins smugly until he <laughs> realises until he realises the ship's leaving without him as well. <laughs> Jarvik speaks with Shad. Uh, you don't see exactly the um, you only see the tail end of the conversation, where Jarvik says to Shad he shall expect both courage and enterprise, which uh, Servalan sees as outmoded concepts. Yeah. To which Jarvik responds, "In computers, yes. In men, no. <laughs> For he men does... are awesome. <laughs> we are men. <laughs> but when you're Jarvik, you are definitely awesome." <laughs> Not everyone has a Viking centre named after them. This is oh dear. <laughs> um, how long have you been waiting to segue that little gem in? Well, it works so well in dress rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> so the Liberator enters orbit around Kairos and detects the pursuit ships. Jarvik runs the battle. Uh, when they're preparing for battle, Tarrant tells Dana to set the force wall to uh, overlap rather than interlock and says that Caddy knows how to do it. But as they're flying about, uh, Jarvik notices that the Liberator's keel is exposed, so orders one of the ships to open fire. Tarrant doesn't understand how they've been hit, but it turns out that uh, Caddy didn't tell Dana about the force wall because she's with Avon scanning the Sopron. <laughs> of course she is. And... Uh, Callie's quite scared of the Sopron because she says it's sitting there thinking and she can see her mother and father. And uh, Aurak denies that Sopron's alive and says it's very close to simulated life but it's not actually life. Tarrant bursts in really quite annoyed and yeah. says that the uh, the Sopron's warps Avon's nor normally notorious sense of looking out for number one. And Avon just says, well, you know, we've got a superior spacecraft and you're meant to be like the most experienced warfare commander. Go deal with it. Off you go. <laughs> Eat some crow. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, on their own, Data and Villa manage to destroy one of the pursuit ships by firing through the force wall, which is apparently what you could do if you set it on to um, overlap, which Tarrant was saving when, they, when two attacked at once, but is fine. He goes on to destroy the other two ships. <laughs> Servalan is annoyed, but Jarvik just says, you know, Yep. to calm down and she'll have the ship and she's like well you know, what are you going to use the <laughs> shuttle or are you going to use your bare hands which from Jarvik you can believe could be probably good at which point Jarvik throws Servalan over his shoulder dumps her onto a sofa and tells her to shut up Jarvik is all that is man he's just missing a plaid shirt 
<laughs> so the Liberator rendezvous with the Kyropan shuttle, and Tarrant teleports on board, decides things are all clear, and so the rest of the crew come on board. While they're moving the crates out, uh, Villa stumbles upon the fact that there's about six Federation guards inside, and they're, they're getting disarmed until Avon gets the drop on them, and, and they all get killed. So they put all the Kyropan uh, crates onto the Liberator and detach from the ship, but it turns out that the Kyropan crates are actually filled with Federation <laughs> troopers. Jarvik is sat looking quite smug in the command and control centre. Servalan comes in and says that she's decided she's not going to have him executed, but he is going to stand trial. But as the guards are coming in to take him away, Captain Shad teleports onto Space Command and says that the... Um, the Liberator is now under Federation control and stands off Space Command ready for inspection. Jarvik uh, declines the invitation to step aboard and inspect, because he says, <laughs> As a great man once said, there's no next to a battle lost, there's nothing nearly so half as melancholy as a battle won. Yes. You know, because he's very profound. Uh, but... <laughs> He says he doesn't like gloating <laughs> over a fallen enemy. Luckily, there's someone very nearby who really enjoys gloating over a fallen it's a, enemy. It's a speciality. <laughs> yes. For the first time ever, Servalan teleports aboard the Liberator, yeah, and he's loving it. Lording it up over everybody. Gets to the bridge. <laughs> gets sassed by Zen. <laughs> which yeah. is just fantastic. Uh, the crew are dragged up in front of Servalan, and Servalan says she wants Zen to acknowledge her voice pattern, and she's going to kill each member of the crew until somebody does that for her. Tarrant refuses, but Avon says that he'll do it. So he gets uh, Servalan to introduce herself to Zen, and tells Zen to obey her voice commands on one condition. Servalan isn't happy about this, but Avon points out that the instruction has to be completed by him, otherwise it won't be valid. And if she wants to try and take Zed apart, Avon is the only person who can put it back together again. So the condition that Avon states is that Zed will follow Sir Levalan's commands only if her first command is to take the Liberator to a planet with suitable Earth-type conditions and that the current crew are teleported safely to the ground. So Sir Levalan tells Zed to take the Liberator to a planet with suitable Earth-type conditions. When Zen asks which planet, Sir Levalan says, oh, the nearest... To which Zen points out the nearest planet is Kairos. <laughs> Whoops. Now at the end of its seven-day harvest period and <laughs> deadly to all other life. Yeah. To which Servalan says, yes, I know. <laughs> and just sort of smiles at Avon. So the crew get teleported down. They all split up. Uh, Dado and Callie and Tarrant and all go off in pairs. Avon decides he's going to find his own salvation. Villa finds some Kyropan. And Dana puts it in her pocket. Uh, Avon finds a old... It looks like a lunar landing module. Yeah. And gets Tarrant to have a look at it. And says, like... Tarrant says, basically, it's not designed to go any further than its command module. And Avon asks Tarrant if he can take... If, it can, if he can get it to take off. Tarrant says, theoretically, yes, but he doesn't understand why. And Avon says, don't worry, that's fine. Leave that to me. Meanwhile, back at Space Command, Servalan's <laughs> just fucked Jarvik again. <laughs> Shack count two. There we go. <laughs> Jarvik has refused command of the Liberator because he says he's not interested in a command. He said he, you know, if he'd have wanted to command a spaceship, he'd have stayed with the Space Service, which is reasonable enough. 
Yep. So Servalan suggests because uh, you know their boyfriend and girlfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> he is the but, Prince Philip to Servalan's. <laughs> so it's like a, if Jarvik wants to be mad enough to be co-ruler with Servalan, then he has to best Tarrant man to man and get the teleport bracelets for the rest of the crew. So Jarvik willingly volunteers, teleports down to Kairos. At this point, something ridiculous happens, because it turns out the thing that is killing all the people who stay after the seventh day, giant wobbly-arsed spiders. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out they eat Kyropan, and they use it to make cobwebs. And the scent clings to people, so they will hunt you down wherever you happen to be. As such, because Dadu is holding some Kyropan, this giant wobbly-arsed spider has caught her up in a spider's web, uh, she's rescued by Jarvik, who explains what the giant wobbly ass spiders are doing. And uh, Tarrant's surprised to see Jarvik, because he's not seen him in years, and asks how he got here, but then all of a sudden he notices he's wearing a teleport bracelet. He takes Dana hostage and says he wants the bracelets from everybody else. And Tarrant goes, oh, and you would hide behind a woman to get them? <laughs> to which Jarvik responds, man to man, eh, Tarrant? So the two of them have a bit of a fight, and Jarvik wins, because he's Jarvik. And because Tarrant's Tarrant. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the rest of them fork over their bracelets, with the exception of Dana, who says, yeah, if you want mine, you're going to have to take it. Yeah. Avon tells Tarrant that he's got like a couple of minutes to get the space module in the air. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Dana is handing Jarvik his ass <laughs> several times mm. until um, Jarvik just sort of overwhelms her with his strength. And then another giant wobbly ass spider shows up, so Jarvik calls for teleport, so Dana and Jarvik are teleported up to the Liberator. In a slightly compromising position. Yes. Servalan uh, didn't look happy. No. Uh, <laughs> Servalan has Dana brought to the bridge. Avon says, look, you need to get this thing off the ground right now, because if we stay on the ground, Servalan's going to blow us up. So the module takes off, just in time, because Servalan has Zen destroy like a, a couple of hundred yards of surface area with plasma bolts and Avon explains that on board the module he has built an artificial Sopron and that explains exactly what it is that Sopron does because Sopron exists on a permanent dark side the way it defends itself is it acts like a distorting mirror it reflects a distorted and greater image of the things scanning it so Zen saw a capacity charged brain because that's what Zen is Orax saw a highly sophisticated machine because that's what Orak is and Callie thought she saw her parents, but what she actually saw was you know, a greater version of herself. So the idea is that when the Liberator scans the space module, it will see something that's actually tougher than the Liberator. So he gets Tarrant to call the Liberator and get them to surrender. When Jarvik sees the ship, he thinks it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but Servalat is less than amused when um, Zen tells her that it's a... Herculaneum self-healing battlecruiser with an offensive capacity greater than the Liberators. Tarrant tells him to surrender. Jarvik is apoplectic that Servalan might be buying into this and begs her to not believe the computers and to believe her eyes instead. But Servalan orders an evacuation of the Liberator and they have to teleport to the Kyropan transport shuttle because that's the nearest ship. She orders Dana to be shot but Jarvik gets in the way and gets shot. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, no, it goes down like a punk. Uh. 
Uh, Dana says that if Servalan kills her, nobody will be able to teleport them off. So Dana teleports Servalan and the rest of the Federation crew away. The Liberator crew manage to successfully somehow dock the space module on board. And they're left with the body of Jarvik and order and Avon orders Zen to erase Servalan's voice print. And that's the end of the episode. Mr. Wilson, your thoughts on this? Well, it's uh, pretty bloody good, isn't it? It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, to be honest, this episode, it's all about Jarvik. Yes, Jarvik looms large. <laughs> Literally and in terms of presence. Yes. Yes. He's just an amazing character, isn't he? The thing is, he's like a better version of Carnell. Because I know you liked Carnell. I like Carnell for different reasons. Yeah. Because you know I mean? Carnell was just sort of fun and a bit impish, and a bit sort of rakish. Mm. Whereas, there's a lot of the alpha male about Jarvik. I suppose... I mean, he, he, he's yeah. very much a product of the 70s. <laughs> I see. Well, just in so far that you know, he, he just has his way with the woman, no matter what. Even though she's more powerful than him, he's not, it's a woman. She's here for me to be, <laughs> to be loved by me, Jarvik. <laughs> and I mean, what an entrance! God, yes. I mean, he just like to stand on his hands on his hips, his jumpsuit open to his chest, grabs Servalan, snogs her, knocks the guards out, holds the room. <laughs> at gunpoint, and then just goes, yeah, no, I'd actually come here for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as chess up lines go... Well, maybe good. that's one you can try next time you're out and about, Mr. Wilson. I'll, just, I'll, just I'll give it a go. Sort of, I'll you know, give woman, it a go. you're beautiful. Just grab her. And... Ah, that is the problem with trying that in Newcastle. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a practice I think would probably be frowned upon. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also work in the legal profession. Yes. And I know that there are much worse implications than simple... <laughs> than simple... There's, there's some very legal interpretations yes. of that. It's not just simple misogyny. No. It's, uh, I believe it's called sexual assault. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah is that, he's a character you shouldn't like, but you do. You can't help yourself. Well, I'm, I'm, sure that, yeah. I'm sure there are many women who find Jarvik terribly objectionable. <laughs> yeah, but I mean the thing is, I mean, es- essentially he's helping the most evil woman in the universe, and yet he's a big believer in honor and humanity and everything like that. Well, he he's someone who you believe commands the respect of his men. Yes, but but genuine respect. I mean, like someone like Travis. Like, his men were quite clearly scared of him because they thought he was nuts, so he sort of had command through fear. Yeah. But, like, the tail end of that little uh, conversation he has with Shad, mm. and you see that Shad, you know, he's, like, genuinely inspired by this speech. It's yeah. like, you know, Jarvik's men follow him because he's Jarvik. Yes. Not because they're scared of him. He, like, he, he believes in, sort of, like, you know, men should be respected and all this sort of business. Mm. And maybe that's why, uh... Travis chooses mutoids. I suppose so. Because, you know, how else is he going to get respect? <laughs> get plastic-headed zombie vampires instead. And that was another thing, because 
he uh, sacrificed three ships so yeah. that his grand scheme can come off. Um, but afterwards, I mean, Servalan even puts the question to him, you know, if you're such a big fan of life, why did he sacrifice those three ships? And he said, well, I piloted them with mutoids. They're not people. Yeah, um, I see no reason why men should die on my account. Yeah. Real manly men like me, <laughs> Jarvik. Yeah, I, I mean, if we if we're gonna compare him to Travis, and we'll do it briefly. Um, I mean, I like the concept of Travis, but in one episode, Jarvik has done pretty much everything that Travis was tasked to do, and better and quicker and more awesome. Yeah. I mean, because I still like Stephen Griefs, Travis, but... Oh, don't be wrong, I've still got a lot of time for Stephen Griefs, Travis, but... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if the two of them ever met, it'd be like, uh, I nearly captured the Liberator once. Really? Well, not only did I actually capture the Liberator, I fucked your boss. <laughs> and all you could do is vague sexual threats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, I mean, Jarvik succeeds at everything he attempts to do. Yeah. Everything Jarvik is given to do, he does. I mean, even when Servland says, if you truly want to be mine, you will go down and strip the the crew of their teleportation bracelets. And you think, ah, now that's where Jarvik's going to come a cropper. Uh, to use old printing speak. <laughs> <laughs> Again, from the dress rehearsal. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, Jarvik even succeeds there. Yep. Um, he, he bests Taran to combat and says, you know, hand over your bracelets or I'll kill him. And, <laughs> you know, maybe they had a bit of a 50-50 decision there. But Well, I think under normal circumstances, it wouldn't have been a problem yeah. but for them to kill Taran. But Avon knows that they need to pilot the space module, so they do oh, sort right. of need Taran. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All things um, being equal, if it was if the situation was different, Avon would have been like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> yeah, he's Tarrant and I'm Avon. You know, who who comes first in the credits? It's not the bit when they're first squaring up, and Tarrant turns around and goes, "Wait, don't move!" And like nobody is. <laughs> like in Tarrant's head, everyone's rushing forward to defend him, and everyone just stood there going, "Really? What? No, carry on. <laughs> Want to see how you do here? Go on." It, it's like that old joke of uh, I need a volunteer to step forward and everyone else steps backwards apart from this one schmuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, although Dana doesn't really give up her bracelet, he still manages to get her back aboard the Liberator. Yeah. So yeah, he has done everything he's been tasked to do. Absolutely. And ultimately, the whole thing unravels because of Servalan. Yeah. Jarvik, he's laughing his head off when he's looking at this pathetic spaceship. Because he knows it's a pathetic spaceship. Exactly. Like, you're flight. You're trying to attack us with a lunar module. Fuck off. <laughs> but I mean, in one way, I can see why Serverland did that. I, I mean, yes, she trusts computers, but now she has got the ultimate computer telling her about this thing, and. You know, it has no real reason to lie to her. So, 
Although having said that, if you were in Serverland's shoes and Tarrant's revealed to be in a ship that's got a greater capacity than the Liberator's, you'd say, well, what does he want the Liberator for then? Yeah. Like, if if the ship he's in is better than the one I'm in, why does he want mine? Perhaps he's just pissed off. <laughs> Give it to me or I'll blow you out the sky. Or would you just leave? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. just retreat. <laughs> They'd be screwed down, wouldn't they? For God's sake, the Liberator spent like the entire first series running away from other ships. So, Servalan pretty much undoes all of Jarvik's good work. Yeah, had she listened to Jarvik, that episode would have ended with them getting blown out of the sky. Jarvik sails off in the Liberator, which he, he renames the Flying Fuck Palace. <laughs> <laughs> and Servalan spends the rest of her life walking around like John Wayne. <laughs> uh. You won't hear that in the Time Vault podcast. <laughs> wow. Yes. But shades of Fisher <laughs> there, sir. Shades of Fisher. Well, if you ever choose to show a damn an episode of Blake 7, this is the one to show him. <laughs> Pretty much. A damn, this is you on screen. <laughs> They've captured your essence. <laughs> Just without the mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> He's sporting a mohawk now. Oh, he's been sporting a mohawk for the past couple of years. Oh. That's the thing about podcasts. Uh, you're never quite sure of how people look. This is true. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, and and then, I mean, just, just to add insult to injury, the way Jarvik goes out. Oh, yeah. Oh. Just get, getting shot by just happening to stand in the way a bit. <laughs> It's, uh So I was like, Jarvik! And they're like, oh well, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved Jarvik to become like a recurring anta- oh, antagonist. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the thing, because to what extent is he truly an antagonist? I, w- I wouldn't say he's a villain. He's an yeah. antagonist insofar that he's set up against the crew. I don't know how yeah. much of a villain you could call him. Yeah. It's why I said antagonist rather than villain, because mm. you kind of get the feeling that if you did start ruling the Federation with Serverland, it would actually be a bit of a better place. <laughs> and you could kind of see him just phasing her out gradually in terms of power and control. Until not so much phasing her out. Is it, you know, it'd be just like, we're doing this, and Serverland's like, no, we're not. Yes, we are, woman. Get on that couch. <laughs> uh, Who told s- you to get off your knees? <laughs> Uh, the Bring me more raw steak and beer. <laughs> Where's my drinking horn? Yes. We're going pair bonding later. Servalan, dance around that pole for a bit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Go up to the bedchamber. If I'm not there in 20 minutes, start okay. without me. <laughs> I think you've made your point there, Dave. Sorry, I just went to a very Jarvik place. <laughs> Didn't you just? <laughs> Valhalla. The <laughs> um, <laughs> <Good> blood's up. <laughs> so it's fair to say this episode really should have just been called the Jarvik episode. <laughs> just called Jarvik. <laughs> capital letters with an exclamation mark. <laughs> or maybe two. Yes. Um, In fact, I would like to propose now that if we say anything is awesome, we no longer say it's awesome, so as not to offend Stefan's ears, but yeah. we instead declare it Jarvik. Right. 
I hope I remember that for the second review. <laughs> this episode is Jarvik. <laughs> there you go, Stefan. There's, there's another... <laughs> yeah. Added to the lexicon right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that we end this podcast with a glossary. <laughs> That's a sign of a good podcast, is that? <laughs> well, it's literary based. Yep. But throw in a map as well, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, well, but, I think we, we should probably talk about some other things as yeah, well. Yeah, there were other characters in the episode. <laughs> yes. There were. Um, I think the most interesting one to talk about in this episode would probably be Tarrant. Well, yes, because this is when we've had like the first proper showcase of his skills as a space captain. Yeah. Because obviously he's been talked about sort of like fairly often until now, but this is the first time we've actually seen... Mainly by him. Yes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the first time we've seen him in command and kicking some ass. Well, having said that, I'm surprised he didn't just sit, set Zen on them, because like, like, three pursuit ships, like Zen's like, fucking bollocks, come on! <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Zen just well, we, we talked about before Zen took out seven without breaking into a sweat yep so <laughs> Zen do your thing <laughs> righto I'm mad for it come on <laughs> like a Larry footballer on a Saturday night <laughs> we get to see Tarrant at his kind of best and worst in equal measure yeah whereas we just see Tarrant at his worst in the next episode oh god yeah um, but it's, it's an interesting dichotomy because I mean, we get to see, you know, what is on the surface level a very good scheme. And if if Jarvik weren't just like round the corner going, yeah, I know this guy, I know exactly what he's going to do, so this is how we foil him. You know, take Jarvik out of the picture, and the scheme probably would have succeeded. Yeah. But, I mean, in many ways we see that Jarv- uh, Jarvik, we see that Tarrant is... You know, he's capable enough, but he perhaps doesn't have a plan B in his system. It's kind of like the ego of his character doesn't really allow him enough forethoughts for, like, a a backup strategy in case something goes wrong. Yeah, he's got, like, he's so confident that his A plan will work that the minute it goes wrong, he's got nothing. Yeah. Which is patently obvious when Serverland's got them all captured. He's like, oh, yeah, wait, let's talk about this. And Serverland says, well, there's nothing to talk about. But she's right. <laughs> there's nothing to talk about. She's got the ship. You've lost. Yeah. What, what do you want to talk about? Serverland so, so Avon has to step in. <laughs> uh, in the same way, it shows a nice um, kind of dichotomy between Tarrant and Avon as well. Yes. Because as we see in this episode, and as we saw in the previous episode, uh, Dawn of the Gods, which is shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually shitter than the web. Yeah, yeah kind of. Um, but the thing with, with that is we see that Avon's kind of taking a back seat and kind of allowing Tarrant to try and impose himself as the new figurehead of what was always known as Blake's crew. I mean... You, you can certainly argue that Avon was always like the power behind the throne, but um, he was never really the figurehead of no. the operation. And the way it's played here is that 
whilst Terence is off bragging and talking about how wonderful his plan is there, he, he's getting a bit annoyed at Avon for not really paying the blindest bit of notice and just dabbling with a rock instead. <laughs> well, I think it's more annoyed... What annoys him more is the fact that Avon just isn't paying him any respect, or his, what, his plan any respect. Mm. He's like, yeah, whatever, go rob your shuttle, I'm not really interested. Yeah, it's it's almost like he's kind of seeking some kind of validation from Avon in some... If if only a small way, if only to satiate his ego. Because I think yeah, deep down... He, t- he, he totally wants approval. He wants approval from Avon to go ahead. Yeah. And, I mean, we we see it with the uh, the whole Shields thing. Because yeah. Terrence is so confident that uh, Dana and Callie can work together with the Shields. But it doesn't take the blindest bit of notice that Callie isn't actually on the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and more annoyingly, Avon has kind of whisked her away to do more experiments on that bloody rock. <laughs> even better than that whilst Tar- Tarrant is outlining his grand scheme Avon just blows up the, the rock halfway through <laughs> it's just like sorry and then just goes back to the rock it's, it is a rare comedy moment from Avon isn't it <laughs> it's a it's a rare piece of slapstick from Avon put it that yes. way yes it's it's a rare moment where he gets to channel chuckle vision. <laughs> well, I mean, something I found quite interesting was the fact that Servalan appears to be very aware of Tarrant all of a sudden. Yeah, because, I mean, we get to see on board the ship, we have her kind of like simpering old crony going, I don't want to alarm you with this, Madam President, but there's this guy below decks who's saying all these nasty things about you. Um, and basically, you're kind of afraid of Tarrant. And we're up to this point going, okay, Tarrant? He's only been in like three episodes before this one. She clearly knows something about him anyway, because when they're talking about the third ship being eclipsed. Yeah. And she says like, oh, he knows the third ship's out there, he's no fool. How do you know who, I've got, up until this point, I had no idea she even knew he was on the Liberator. Oh, it's, it's an like opportunity you... for Big Finish there. There you go. That's a nice gap in the market for your Big Finish. Yeah. But yeah, because um, like, assuming that guy's she, still alive, she she would know Dana is still on board. Is on board. Yeah. Because she's on teleport with Avon, and she knows Callie and Villa are on board because she's spoken to Villa over the intercom, and presumably Callie must have survived as well. But she'd have no, not even an inkling that Tarrant was on board. Um, I mean, presumably no. Tarrant must have some sort of reputation. For the you... fact that Jarvik talking below decks is like yeah, everybody yeah. must know who Tarrant is for a unless it's Jarvik starting it's oh yeah that Tarrant is a brilliant bloke great space commander yeah yeah I could take him down no problem because <laughs> yeah, yeah of course I could have fucking Jarvik aren't I although I mean think back to the way that Tarrant was introduced he yeah. like fraudulently kind of got himself a command of of a Federation fleet and we start us off and they're on board the Liberator. Yeah. So, I mean, granted, Servalan wasn't in the greatest of positions at the time anyway, no. but you'd think that if he had been doing that ruse for quite a while, or at least whilst the um, the big battle was still going on, then word might have reached her. 
Oh, possibly, yeah. It, it, it just sort of seems a bit out of the blue. Oh, yeah, I, I in, agree. In, in, in yeah. the context. I mean, yeah. yes, it is entirely plausible that in the intervening time between Dawn of the Gods and this episode that, you know, word has got out and she's looked up Tarrant's record and knows who she's dealing with and everything, but because none of that's mentioned, it's just all of a sudden she knows who Tarrant is. Yeah. And just from what we've been shown on screen, she shouldn't. Well, it's not a deal-breaker for the episode. Oh, no. Not, not at all. all. Well, like, talking about potential deal-breakers for the episode... Right. I think I know where this is going. Yes, yes. The, the wobbly-ass spiders. Zombie! <laughs> there's, there's no denying they look ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> what I would say is that they turn up late enough in the episode for it not to be a problem. Yeah, it's... They're not exactly the Decimers, or, no. or dare we even mention its name, Zill. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, certainly the, the plot doesn't hang off them. No. You know, they're there for a bit of extra jeopardy, and presumably because they wanted some sort of monster in it. Yeah. But the plot doesn't stand or fall on them being there. You could have taken those out of it, and the story would have worked fine. Oh, yeah. So the story would have worked absolutely fine. So the fact that they're... Like, you don't see them till very late on into the episode anyway. It's not like the web where they show you how ridiculous the, <laughs> <laughs> the main villain looks yeah. within the first 30 seconds of, of screen time. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing him later on. <laughs> I presuppose you're excited for a moment in the web. <laughs> Which is shit. <laughs> see, I, I think they just about get away with it with that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I mean, there have been other instances of that over the show's uh, lifespan. I mean, I I always remember those, frankly, god-awful robots that the Federation used to have. Oh, yes. And yet, that didn't quite diminish the story in my eyes. Well, again, they were sort of introduced for temporary jeopardy. They were exactly. something to hide from. They, yeah. weren't, well, yeah, they weren't the linchpin of the plot. Yeah. Like, here is the big monster we're fighting. But yeah, so you do have, as you say, some of these sort of slightly ridiculous looking things, but when they're sort of more in the background to the episode and they're, they're just there for something to run away from temporarily or something to hide from, it's, while it is silly and you know, anybody who's not bought into the show, like, it's invariably when you're watching a show like that, that when you're in, when somebody who's not into the show walks in and catches you watching it, it's usually when something like that is on the screen. <laughs> like, it's never during yeah. any of the good bits, or you know, the good bits of acting, or the action, mm. or whatever. It's always when something a bit crap wanders on. Yeah. Which is just a bit depressing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but other than that, I mean, there's nothing much else to really talk about, is there? Because, I mean, Bella has nothing to do. No, he, he complains a little bit at the start. Yeah. Callie has nothing to do. Not really. And Dana does get a moment, um, certainly when she's against uh, Jarvik, and then it's just like outright defiance in Servan's face. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I think that's about it, to be honest. I suppose it probably is. Well, should we go for the feedback for this episode, then? Oh, yes, let's. Gareth's feedback for The Harvest of Kairos. It's in his uh, usual sort of note form. Alright. Uh, so Terence is in charge with Avon and Villa on the surface of a planet collecting MacGuffin rocks. Yes? 
Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm with you so far. It's good to see that not all of Tarrant's arrogant bullshit and he gets to show off twice in this episode his skills as a former Federation commander. His old captain is Jarvik, who I have to thank the writer for. The character is so good and fun. He's very fleshed out and yet can score at least two on Mr. Wilson's old shag count. Oh, there we go. Yeah, you see. Uh, the harvest itself is an interesting concept and even the clearly a man in a suit doesn't stop this from being a good romp. Even the aforementioned MacGuffin Rock helps the crew out when they pilot the lunar, the lunar lander into space. I don't know if it's because of the previous episode with Dawn of the Gods, but uh, every element should not work, and yet it comes together so well that you can see how it all fits together. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just because the preceding episode was Dawn of the Gods. I mean, to be fair, we've got a good sort of two months distance on Dawn of the Gods. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, a lot of repression therapy. <laughs> I, I can barely remember anything that happened again. Let's keep it that way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we've also got some feedback on the Harvest of Kairos from Stefan. Ah. Who says, uh, This episode, bar the last moments, is brilliant. How could you possibly go past an episode that features the line, Woman, you're beautiful, <laughs> in completely ignoring a question from Servalan? Oh, yes. Let's face it, Jarvik is just doing to Servalan what all us fanboys would like to do, and excuse me for finding her even hotter than usual in this episode. I'll be in my bunk. <laughs> well, uh, good luck with that, Steph. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I want to know is, since when did uh, Travis... Well, uh, he's written Travis, I think he actually means Tarrant. Right. Because he says, uh, what I want to know is, since when did Tarrant become Blake-lite? Well, dare I say yeah. it, cosplay Blake. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Avon C- What's that? Do, do, doesn't, uh. It, the recesses of my memory, doesn't Jillian call Tarrant not Blake or something like that? Uh, she, yeah, she calls him not Blake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Avon seems like an old dog here, happy to let the puppy work off some of its enthusiasm and hopefully not get them all run over by a bus in the process. <laughs> well, that worked well. <laughs> Even Servalan is giving Tarrant the credit here when it's blatantly obvious by the numerous mistakes and assumptions he makes that yes, he might be okay in a tactical fight, but he's fucked when it comes to having to outthink anyone. <laughs> I do love Avon completely ignoring what's going on to the point of obnoxiousness. <laughs> the one thing I didn't like is the ending where Servalan is fooled so easily despite the fact that all the evidence points to them being played. This is not the all-powerful risk-taking woman that ruled the Federation, but then we all have our bad days. The other thing that peeved me some was the fact that Avon didn't take the opportunity to give Tarrant a right world bollocking, which I can only assume leads to the problems that the crew face in the next episode. Blake Light definitely needs a good slap round the head in this episode, especially as I don't think he's learnt much. Uh, learning and growing isn't one of Tarrant's strong points. <laughs> That's true enough. To, I mean, to, to be fair to Tarrant, it's like I said, I mean, if it weren't for the fact that Jarvik, who seemingly knows him inside out, yep. um, weren't helping out Servlan, then you know, his, his scheme probably would have come off. I mean, apart from the fact that the Liberator is ultimately captured with <laughs> a tactic that is as old as Homer's Iliad. Um, <laughs> literally, because of the, the Trojan horse uh, metaphor. But then the reason that works is because Jarvik knows that Tarrant's biggest weakness is his ego. Yeah. 
And so, like, the minute that Taran thinks his plan has succeeded, he just shoots his bolt and goes, like, even when he teleports onto the Coropan transporter, like, he, he doesn't have a proper look around. He just, like, sees nobody's in the room he's in at the moment and then tells everyone else to come aboard. Yeah. And then all those other guards get the drop on them. And Avon does point out that they were an obvious possibility. Yes, he, he does put him in his place there, doesn't he? Actually, thinking about that scene, Villa shoots a guy. Does he? Yes, because well, I, I, when I watched it, I thought, oh, does, does Villa actually kill somebody in this? And I reround it, and there's one guy that Villa definitely shoots. Okay. Because as we said before, it's been yeah, unusual for Villa to actually mm. kill anybody. Yeah. Or you know, to go out of his way to kill anybody unless it. I mean, admittedly, it's a self defense thing. Yes. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's unusual for Villa to rack up a kill. Yes. I, I just thought it was notable. Mm. But yeah, uh, it's like hubris, really, is Tarrant's weakness. <laughs> yes. And Jarvik knows perfectly how to exploit it, and that's what leads to him getting done over. And, as discussed, because he's so confident in his main plan, he, he has no backup plan, because he just assumes the first plan's going to work. Yeah. And in that, I mean, we're covering two episodes back-to-back that sees Tarrant fail at something. Yeah. The scale of his failure here in no way compares to the next episode. Oh, God, no. So, <laughs> But it is very much the same problems. But having said that, it would seem like an opportune me- moment to uh, discuss the next episode. Don't to you transition. Think? Absolutely. I like what you did there. Highly trained professionals. <laughs> Let's do it. I've um, brought my tools here. Uh, what exactly is it you want me to do? Just name it. I'm your man. You don't know who I am? Absolutely not. No idea. You needn't worry about it. I won't ask any questions. Small-time thief and failed revolutionary. And you don't know who I am? Ah, well, if you put it like that, of course I know who you are. You're... you're uh, Baben. Uh, Baben, yes. Baben the Berserker? Baben the Butcher? Baben the Butcher. You're Baben the Butcher? Oh, no. That's better. You're top of the Federation's most wanted list. After Blake. What do you mean, after Blake? I was working my way up that list before he crept out of his crash. Working my way up. I didn't take any political shortcuts. I know, I know. You have a reputation for straightforward mayhem that's second to none. I've been an admirer of yours for, um, well, for as long as I can remember. Well, maybe not that long. I mean, uh, you're not that old, are you? But uh, then again, you did start very young, didn't you? I think I feel sick. So you should, little man. Villa, I like a man who shows respect. You'll enjoy working for me. Will I? Uh, oh, yes, I will. Of course I will. Good. Well, you can start by opening that door. Now? Now. What's behind it? You don't need to know that. I decide what I need to know. Yes? Yes. I make the decisions round here. The captain makes the decisions round here. Why, you... Jump! Villa, come here and sit down. Now, I went to a lot of trouble to get you here. And that is all the trouble I intend to have. Now, you will open that door, or I will open you from there to there. Right? Right. Right. But I still need to know what's in there. The key to any security system is how it was designed. That depends on why it was designed. I have to know what whoever designed it was trying to protect. So, our next episode is The City at the Edge of the World. 
Mr. Wilson, the floor is yours. Well, here it is, my first Chris Boucher episode. Hey! Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. Okay. So, we start off uh, at the uh, teleportation deck where Villa is being bullied into doing something. We're not quite sure what. Uh, by Tarrant, who as much as says, look, if you don't do what I'm making you do, I will just throw you off the ship. Because I'm brilliant. I am Tarrant. Um, Boo! Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't remember much of the last story, does he? Um, no. Nope. So, <laughs> so Villa agrees with extreme reluctance and irritation. Yeah. And goes to get his uh, things. We find out that uh, essentially his services have been traded by Tarrant uh, for some uh, crystals that they need for the uh, the blasters of the Liberator. And <laughs> Villa goes down under duress, um, theoretically with uh, a tracer because they they've asked him, but he goes alone and. Uh, isn't followed and that there are no weapons or anything like that. Um, Avon expresses <coughs> somewhat of a disdain for Tarrant's treatment of Villa, um, which Tarrant calls him out on, but Avon notes his actual worth to the crew, which he understands even though he doesn't really like Villa <laughs> yeah. uh, as a person. So, um, so they go down and um, uh, well, well uh, Villa says, right, they're here, come down and collect them. And then he's led off by uh, two mute uh, inhabitants of the planet they're on. And um, Callie goes down and is just like, well, his bracelet's down here, and here's a box. And Dave says, yeah, you might not want to touch that box, at least not from close range. So, uh, Callie takes him up on his advice, and the box explodes. Uh, bracelet count one there. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, I should say, it was a... How many people did Servland evacuate with in the last episode? It's difficult to say. There must be at least, what, three? Three. Well, there's, there three, there's, there's three on the bridge apart from Jarvik, isn't there? I think so. If memory serves. I, I, I will go back and and rewatch just just for my my notes. Um, so Villa <laughs> uh, continues to complain as uh, his mute guards uh, uh, lead him to a complex and then just leave him there. Um, at which point uh, Carol Hawkins shows up um, and uh, says, "Get up." I'm, I'm, I'm taking you to what you need to be doing, and um, right, I'm sorry. Where, where do you know Carol Hawkins from? Uh, late era Carry On films. Ah, right. So I just right. Why, why you were referring to her by the actress's name? Yes. So that it, well, it's something I'm going to do again this episode. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may as well be consistent. Fair enough. Um. So Carol Hawkins. <laughs> Uh, play a character called Carol. Um, after withstanding some abuse from Villa about her personal hygiene, <laughs> <laughs> um, is then led uh, to an up-and-coming 80s actor, um, a, a chap called Colin Baker. Um, have you heard of him, Dave? 
vaguely, I recall some of his work. Right, okay. Um, so, uh, Colin Baker plays Babe, <laughs> Babe and the Butcher. Yes. And he is a power-crazed uh, criminal uh, who is desperately trying to uh, open a seemingly unopenable door because of a prophecy uh, of the people on that planet that said that uh, beyond that door lies everything in this world and the next. Um, so Baben thinks that because there's pretty much bugger all on this planet, um, it must all be behind this door and therefore very valuable. Uh, and they, he explains to Villa um, in a somewhat menacing way that um, they've tried pretty much everything but they can't just even scratch or dent it. So um, he has an hour to open it or essentially he'll kill him. Um, so back on the Liberator the crew kind of sticks a boot into Tarrant <laughs> um, for not really thinking through the arrangement. Um, so uh, Callie and Avon go down uh, to investigate because of all of the crew they are who uh, Villa trusts the most. Um, with uh, Avon again explaining why, <laughs> Des- despite their enmity, uh, a- uh, Villa would come to trust him. So they go down, they quickly find out that uh, the planet is overrun with Babe's men, and um, uh, after dispatching of one and uh, getting information out of three of them in one of the most hilarious ways possible by faking a grenade attack. <laughs> <laughs> grenade! <laughs> just hit the deck. Um, they discover where they need to head out to. So, um, uh, the pretty much all of the Liberator crew now uh, go down on the surface and enter the complex looking for Villa. Villa, who has actually managed uh, to get this impossible door open because he is that good at opening doors, um, he does so as um, uh, Carol has uh, decided to clean herself up, uh, in part to maybe impress <laughs> Villa, maybe. Um, and the two of them go through the door, which uh, then closes afterwards, and they are transported onto a uh, spaceship of sorts, and the person who uh, instilled the door in that complex, uh, his voice recorded from about 3,000 years ago, uh, explains the situation, but uh, the, the whole thing is essentially a, a kind of bridge uh, to a new world for his civilization to uh, start afresh on. And um, because the air that they brought in with them is likely to run out, um, Villa seems resigned to his death, but um, Carol thinks of something that will make it a bit more enjoyable. Shack count one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I've come under the damn Fisher tribute act. <laughs> She well, had it coming! <laughs> a 
again, for your ears only, uh, the archive of which is at earth2.net. Um, and if you think this podcast isn't child-friendly, <laughs> um, it's got an explicit tag, put it that way. <laughs> Shall I break into my outrageous Russian accent now? <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're all right. Uh, but Villa waking up in the afterglow realises that they haven't suffocated, so uh, uh, the ship uh, must have reached its destination uh, because he notes that air can actually bleed through a force field, um, which would be the the other door. So, uh, he locates said door, and after receiving a bit of a jolt, um, uh, steps out into this new world paradise. Which, <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's like the Garden of Eden, isn't it? The Garden of Me on the Moon, uh, <laughs> seemingly. Um, it's crap. It's, <laughs> it's a crap planet. <laughs> and, and the name that goes with it, Homeworld. <laughs> For all your DIY furnishings. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Villa has the choice of either staying on this homeworld paradise uh, with a woman who is actually willing to sleep with him. Yes, <laughs> who, who actually states that she loves him, or go back to the Liberator crew so that he can revel in the fact that he's a master thief. Because Villa's an idiot, he goes for the latter. Um, so they go back through the door. Meanwhile, inside uh, the complex, um, the Liberator crew and Baben's uh, men have uh, had a bit of a firefight, um, including Dana's fantastic cybermat um, <laughs> heat-seeking bomb of some kind. And um, uh, essentially they all get the jump on Baben. <laughs> And um, they want to know where Villa is. He doesn't know, so Dana cuts him off. And uh, Villa and Carol return. And essentially, the the old the old guy who's been standing there mostly mute to <laughs> antagonising Baben throughout uh, finally explains, uh, "Yes." Uh, our world is free thanks to you, Villa, uh, for being the expert expert man who can open doors. Me and my people will now go to Homeworld. Um, call it something and, better. <laughs> call it something better and start a new. And Carol wants to go with them. The rest of the Liberator crew give Villa the opportunity to, <laughs> to, to make a decision. Um, Villa again explains, nah, it's not for me, I don't think. Uh, but before you can have second thoughts, Baben reappears. Um, the people going to Homeworld go quickly. And the, the problem is, Baben, in his increased desperation, has decided to get a proper laser cannon from a ship. <laughs> and he just wants to blast it at the door. The thing is, uh, the way that Villa got through the door um, was noting that uh, it's partly a, uh, a force field. So uh, anything 
more than the slightest modicum of force uh, will cause that energy just to rebound against it. Um, so as Bateman powers up the gun, Billard really doesn't have much of a choice anymore and teleports back up to the Liberator. Bateman blows himself and half of the city uh, to smithereens and um, on board the crew say, well, sorry about that, Villa, well done, welcome back. Um, Tarrant apologises. Villa realises that he's made a bit of a mistake. <laughs> um, and Orak says, and you'll make plenty more, I'm sure. So <laughs> Villa switches Orak off and says, well, who knows, there must be more women with nice legs out there. And the episode ends. Excellent. Now, yeah. do you know the history of this episode? There is a story connected to the writing of this episode. Uh, I do not, no. Uh, this episode was essentially written for Michael Keating's daughter. Really? Who, who had been watching Blake Seven and a bit fed up of her dad constantly being sort of kicked about and being a coward and stuff. So she wanted to see a story where Villa sort of defeated the bad guy and got the girl. All right. And so, yeah, uh, so Chris Boucher was script editor to put this together as a as a bit of a Villa as a hero episode. I see. I, mean, I don't think it's lovely. It's just the fact that's the reason it came into being in the first place. It is. Um... And it's a wonderful episode. Oh, it's brilliant. I think it's really, really good. Because even though like, Villa gets to have some hero moments, but he's still recognisably Villa. It's not like he's had a sudden personality transplant and He's sort of like, a, like you know, death-defiedly leaping over cliffs and swinging from chandeliers or something. Yeah. Yeah, he is still Villa, but Villa in a position to do stuff. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that was maybe slightly out of character was perhaps him monologuing about how he sees every architect of a doorway as his opponent. And <laughs> Well, I think that's sort of Villa being a bit sort of grandstanding to impress someone. I suppose. Because he's explaining it to Carol. Yes. And yeah, there is that sort of like... Because one thing Venom does like is his sort of reputation. Because obviously it's his reputation that's got him into this situation in the first place. Mm. So the fact that... Uh, yeah, I think he wants to play off that a bit. Explain why he, <laughs> how he goes about being as brilliant as he is. Yeah. It's probably about the only thing Villa does get to boast about in terms of his prowess at anything. Is his ability to yeah. get into things. He's at his most confident when he's talking about safe cracking and stuff. Like when yeah. he's explaining what the, that the block isn't a block, and it's actually mm. a force field designed to look like a block, and, yeah. he, and explaining how to break into it. He's supremely confident. He's not stuttering. He's not scared. He's just talking about what he knows best. Mm. And uh, I mean, even Avon gives him his props uh, throughout the episode, saying, "You know, pilots are ten a penny, but." you know, a, a really talented thief, you know, we, we have use for him. Granted, we don't always use him, but... <laughs> I love the fact that even, yeah, you know, this is a mainly Villa-centric episode, they take a moment to explore the relationship between Villa and Avon. Mm, yeah. So why do these two, like, even though they get on their nerves <laughs> with each other, why do they kind of have each other's back? Because, mm. I mean, like, Tarrant is a twat in this episode. Oh, yes. He's an absolute idiot. He bullies Villa to go down. Doesn't actually know who he's dealing with. Doesn't know much about the area. He's basically useless and crap. Yeah. 
but again, in character with the, the talent we've seen so far, he thinks he's the man with the plan. But as soon as it turns out that's not the plan, he's got nothing. Mm. And then Avon once again has to step in and sort things out. <laughs> the but, problem's over. But yeah, it's yeah the reason that uh, when Callie and Avon are going down to get him, and what Tarrant's like, well, well, I understand why he would trust Callie, but why would he trust you? And he goes like, well, you know what I think of him. Yeah, you despise him. He goes, yeah, but I'm consistent about it. <laughs> we, we don't like each other, but we both recognise each other's value. Mm. You mentioned reputation a bit earlier on, and that's ultimately the reason why um, Villa makes the choice that he makes at the end. But yeah. um, there's quite a bit about reputation in here, because um, I, I suppose we do have to mention um, the guest star. <laughs> <laughs> I I love Baben. Oh, he's brilliant, isn't he? <laughs> he's, just, <laughs> he's just nuts. And he's another one of these people who could make a great recurring villain. Yeah. Because uh, I know uh, from the amount of podcasts I have since listened to covering Colin Baker, um, I know that before he, he obviously before he was the Doctor, um, he had mainly built up a kind of uh, reputation as a TV villain. Yeah, he'd been in a like a soap opera villain for a long time. Yeah, uh, there was a soap opera in the seventies called The Brothers, mm. and he was like the main villain figure in that. Yeah. So, but I mean, the uh, the scene that introduces Baben uh, shows that, that reputation's also important to to him as yeah. well. Uh, it's just because I mean, Bill has been kept in the dark about what he's actually meant to do, so he unintentionally kind of offends um, Baben and say. You haven't heard of me, Baben the Butcher. <laughs> and and uh, there's like, Baben, Baben the Butcher? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, essentially he was like the, the most wanted man in the Federation after Blake, which is something <laughs> that Baben takes extreme umbrage. <laughs> yes. I didn't take uh, any political shortcuts, I was working my way up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in fact, just, I mean, just that opening scene with Baben throughout. I mean, it, it's quite a long one, actually. It's, yes. It goes on a good five minutes. Um, but, you know, he gets to play to the, the rafters in yeah. that one. Oh, he definitely <laughs> plays it big. <laughs> I suppose he'd have to, really, but... Uh, but that's what makes it so fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, at the, at the very end of that scene, a man walks into the room just to be told to leave the room. Yes. <laughs> uh, and... And that speech about his mother. Yeah. Which is just brilliant. Exactly. It's like, babe, she She's called just... me, babe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the man in Villa starts referring to him as babe later on when he's talking to his <laughs> new tenants. Yeah. Like, is babe not happy? Because what, that's what his mother used to call him, didn't she say? <laughs> My mother was a wonderful woman, totally evil. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not Baben's fault. He's just had a bad upbringing. <laughs> he started young, apparently. So. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a wonderful performance by Colin Baker. It's really, really fun. Anyone who's listened to Bigger on the Inside and heard their their discussion of Time Lash and oh, yes. talking about how great Paul Darrow's performance is in that. This is sort of like you know, Doctor Who repaying the favour retroactively. <laughs> this is the prequel. Yes. 
What Paul uh, Darrow did for Time Lash, Colin Baker does for <laughs> City at the Edge of the World. Because they do very briefly share screen time towards the end. They, they do fight. They, they have a punch-up yeah. towards the end. Yeah. I, I, I think I actually wrote down, I was like, Darrow, Baker, fight! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just no one's wearing silver in this one. <laughs> I, right. I I will say this again because I, I've I've made this view known on uh, bigger on the inside, but I love Time Lash um, as as a guilty pleasure, obviously. Yes. But um, because I haven't seen actual good episodes of Classic Who, I've, <laughs> I've got like a, I've got, I've seen perhaps five stories. Uh, like from start to finish altogether. Right. One of those is Time Lash. And it's uh, but the, Paul Darrow makes that one. He, he uh, does make it watchable. Yeah. If, if Paul Darrow wasn't it, in it, then it'd have almost no redeeming qualities at all. <laughs> There's an argument for that. Yes. Um, whereas in this one. Or if you got rid of Babin, it would still be a, a pretty good episode. But he just puts it over. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big performance, a lot of fun. I'm sure there are some people out there who hate it or think, oh, yeah, no, this is just what he did with the Doctor, which it isn't. If no. Anybody who thinks his performance is Babin is what he did as the Sixth Doctor, shut up. <laughs> Not what he did at all. Yeah, he certainly played Babin as deranged. Which I mean, I've I've not seen a lot of the Sixth Doctor, although one of those five stories I've seen all the way through uh, is the Two Doctors. Yes. So I've you know I've got a, a handle on how he played it, and um, I mean it was certainly something that put him on John Nathan Turner's radar. Because I think it was through that that he got his um, appearance in the Ark of Infinity. The Peter David oh, book yes, that he played. He was, yeah. Yeah. So was was JNT a big fan of Take Seven? <laughs> well, I think it would would have been something that he would have been aware of because it was in similar territory to what he was doing. So mm. it would have made sense that he'd have had one eye on just to see what was what was happening. I mean, if only for the fact that you know writers who'd worked for Doctor Who were working on Blake Seven. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. But if we're talking about um, possibly slightly OTT acting, then. Uh, you've then got his kind of uh, officer, <laughs> Sherm, henchman, uh, Mister Sherm. Yes, yes. Who? Okay, he, I mean, he plays that big as well. Uh, obviously, he <laughs> he's in the shadow of the sort of uh, precursor to the Who count. Yeah, uh, he did play a very similar role in the Time Warrior, uh, okay. like Bloodaxe, who again is sort of like the sidekick to the main villain. And it is that very he's very good at doing that sort of uh, blustery, slightly thick lieutenant yeah. kind of roles. Really, I mean you've only got two other supporting characters yeah. and I mean, it would just, just get out of the way Norl, like the old guy who just stands there and does next to nothing. The legend Valentine Dial. Never heard of him. Uh, he he was well known on radio because like, he's got that very wonderful deep booming voice. Oh right, yeah, well I can I can imagine that. Yeah. He was um, he was known as uh, that there's a show called The Man in Black, which is like an anthology series of horror stories, and he he was the Man in Black introducing them. They they did a re- 
well, not a remake, but they did like a, a new version of the Man in Black recently on Radio Four, I think it was, with Mark Gatiss as the Man in Black. But okay. everybody remembers Valentine Dial, sort of this big, deep, sinister voice introducing ghost stories. Okay. And he was also the voice of uh, Deep Thought in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series. Oh right. Okay. And he will be cropping up in the Who Count later as well. Fair enough. Um, so hey, that that uh, leaves us with Carol. Yeah, she's an okay character, I think. Uh, that, it's nice to have. I mean, like, there's like, a bit of a romantic comedy thing going on with them, like from the outset. There's that sort of like a uh, mm. oh, they don't get on, but they're going to end up together sort of thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's quite an odd character about face, though, because you know she <laughs> she starts being fairly good company with. Colin Baker, even though he does say at one point, I might have to kill her. She's not a team player. Well, she's uh, shown initially to be quite a badass. I mean, like, she shoots that gun out of her Sherm's hand and yeah. So, yeah, gives it the talk and everything. But unfortunately, in the second half of the episode, she just becomes a bit of a screaming girl because if yeah. Villa's going to be doing anything heroic, then you can't have some being with someone who's being more heroic than him because otherwise it's not Villa's show. Yeah. Although I, she, I do love that moment when Carol's about to walk through the door and Villa's like, let's go back. He's like, no, no, I want to go on. Villa's like, like, you sure I can't convince you to come back with me? He's like, no. He's like, all right, and <laughs> just walks off. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there is literally one point where some kind of cobweb kind of brushes her head and she shrieks. Yeah, like, even though <laughs> she's like, got a gun and everything and she's been established yeah. as this badass gun hand. It's like the minute she puts a dress on, essentially... From the, from the moment she puts a dress on, her character completely changes. Pretty much. And um, she has sex with Villa. Well, I suppose when you're looking at her choice of potential partners in her day-to-day workplace, <laughs> <laughs> well, Villa's got to come along like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, when you're being told you're in your final moments, it's yeah. like, how do you want to go out? <laughs> Makes sense, I suppose. And it, it is sort of, it's kind of sweet as well, isn't it? When you just sort of see the two of them pootling around on Homeworld. <laughs> just throwing just like, stones into a pond. <laughs> yes, this is how we're going to spend the rest of our lives. <laughs> you can, to work out how to build an Armdale Centre or something. This is <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, you can kind of understand what the villa's like. Yeah, really. Are we can spend all of our time here. <laughs> is this all we're going to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Although it's got to be said, that planet set is cobbled, isn't it? It's pretty bad. Like, it's yeah. meant to be like it's meant to be a paradise, new world for them to settle, and it just looks like a rock with a couple of puddles in it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's like it looks worse than the place they're leaving. <laughs> Yeah, because the actual planet doesn't doesn't seem too bad. Yeah, it's just like yeah, the society's broken down, and it's like yeah. they said, "Oh yes, we're, our society's going to break down, and we're going to retreat into barbarism." And the only way around this is to go to a completely new planet. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sorry, if society broke down, relocating society to a different planet isn't going to solve that. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're pretty much papering over the cracks. <laughs> Same society, different location. Fail. <laughs> what do you think of um, 
Callie and Avon's double act in this because I really enjoyed it. I do like it whenever Callie and Avon are shown to be on like the same page, and in this, they they have a very good working partnership, and they share the same kind of scepticism about Tarrant <laughs> yeah. uh, and and his abilities. And again, that grenade thing, I I laughed when I saw that well, happen. I love the grenade thing. I love the like the two of them rattling off dialogue between them, like they've rehearsed it. There was one moment right after they uh, teleported down where Callie kind of kind of leant in towards Avon's ear and said something softly to him. Yeah. Well, I forget a... what it was. Uh, they were talking about um, like locating them and Callie says, what, you don't think that, like, unless Zen got the coordinates wrong and Avon said... It's a pity we can't all be as reliable as Zen. That's when Callie mm. just leans in and goes, oh, "I thought you were." <laughs> it's just yeah. like a nice little flirty, sort of gently pulling his leg kind of thing. Mm. I mean, that is one of the the kind of upsides about the the way the show, the direction that the show's taken uh, since the beginning of this series. It's given Callie a lot more to do because mm. um, you you just really saw a character stagnate. Uh, in the second series. I mean, Callie's purpose very much here seems to be to sort of temper Avon. Yeah. You know, she's she sort of the, like the voice of reason sort of sitting in between like, Tarrant and Avon arguing. Mm. And if and if Callie takes your side in an argument, you've won, basically, because yeah, she, she appears much. to be the casting vote. <laughs> Even Dana's against <laughs> Tarrant in this one. Well, it's because he's so obviously been a twat. <laughs> Even when Avon and Kelly they uh, put down, Town's like, "Yeah, thanks for siding with me so greatly." And so I agree with them. If that had <laughs> happened to me, I would have killed you. You're a knobhead. <laughs> because like Tarrant's are so two-faced as well. Like towards the end, he's like being all nice. Dude. Oh, we missed you. Oh, that was quite an entrance, my friend. Look at us, good friends and companions who get on yeah. perfectly. You're like, fuck off. <laughs> you an arsehole, you know that. Uh, in fact, I think the only thing stopping Villa from literally saying those words to him was, as he came back, he was a bit too loved up, yeah. and then the second time around, he was a bit too morose about what he'd just done. And Avon's already slammed him anyway. So we we thought we'd lost you, but every silver lining has a cloud. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But yeah. again, that sort of... By Avon and Villa standards, that's actually quite an affectionate greeting. Yeah, I'd, if, and I mean, going back to the very beginning of the episode, um, Avon attempts to have a, a kind of dig at Villa, and Villa snaps at him. He's yeah. just like, yeah, I don't have to take this shit from you as well. And Avon actually backs down and is like, all right. But I think it's then that Avon knows something is genuinely wrong. Yeah. Because right, um, under normal circumstances, he, yeah, he'd give Villa that kind of shit yeah, and Villa would yeah. take it and that. And the fact that yeah. he's saying that, well, he's already given me shit, I'd have to take crap from you about this. And the fact he's like snapping at Avon, he's like, right, something's up, Tarrant said something to him, and that's when he starts having to go at Tarrant after he teleports him down. Yeah. I mean, it's not even so much as only I may mock Villa, because um, he's clearly a very mockable character. Yeah. But um, it's more like, 
yeah, I I have my limits about what I say to Villa. And well, yeah, clearly... I don't like him, but I don't want to scare him because if you scare him, yeah. there's no use to anybody. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, something's clearly gone beyond Villa's tolerance threshold. So, yeah, I mean, to the point where he palms the tracer as well. Yeah, yeah, and Avon's genuinely shocked at that point as well. When he asks Rex where the tracer is, the tracer's underneath the box that's two feet in front of him. He goes, what? (laughs) He just looks at him and goes, oh, the stupid idiot. And again, just like, yeah, makes the point of, like, you see, he was too scared. And that time goes, you're right. I'm sorry, Callie. What are you apologising for fucking Callie, you knobhead? Just like, like, (laughs) there should just be a slow clap over that point. It's like, you fucking idiot, Taron. Have have you any idea whether um, Michael Keating's daughter enjoyed this episode or not? I I haven't researched this or not. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully she did. I'd like to think she did. Yeah, she got to see Daddy get the girl. And and to be fair, he does sort of um, save her from Baben at the end as well. Because he shoots the gun out of Baben's hand. And he covers their escape, and I mean, he gets him a very short scuff with Baben. I mean, Baben does knock him out because yeah, he's Villa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not Jarvik, <laughs> or even Avon. <laughs> but he does get to have that little hero moment again. Mm. And yeah, it's almost like under normal circumstances, this is where you'd expect someone to get written out of the show. Yeah. So like, if you wanted to write Villa out and not kill him, that's how you'd write him out of the show. But I don't think they were ever going to write him out of the show. Although they weren't ever going to write him out of the show. <laughs> no. But sort of, yeah, if you didn't know, and having seen that yeah. Yeah, this is a show where people do depart and people do leave, you could have been forgiven for thinking that this is where a, like where Villa was going to leave the show. Yeah. Yeah. It would be an understandable jumping off point. But it's also interesting to sort of see his reasons for not doing it, because like, he doesn't want to be on a place where there's nothing to steal. I mean, which is... It's why he was going to Sigmund Sauer in the first place. He's a compulsive thief. It's not a career mm. choice. It's something he's compelled to do. And Other can't people's be... property come na- comes naturally to him. Exactly. <laughs> but if he's on a beautiful planet with nothing to steal, he would go nuts. In fact, Tarrant says something similar to him in The Harvest of Kairos as well, when he's talking about settling down on a pleasure, pr- on a pleasure planet. And Tarrant says to him, like, Billy, yeah, you're dreaming. After two weeks, you'd be looking for something to steal. Mm. And here we are again in that that same sort of situation. And so it's like, nice to see that sort of consistency of character. That even though he does regret not going, you do kind of get the feeling that he wouldn't have been happy. Yeah. I I think, to a degree, he would miss his his time on the Liberator. Only to a degree. <laughs> I don't, there is that element of tragedy to it. You think, had they not been interrupted by Baben, maybe Carol would have persuaded him. Yeah. And ultimately, the decision not to go is taken out of his hands. Yeah, yeah. And then he does do the right thing and protects her, and she gets to escape. So it, it's a good showing. It is a very good showing. Yeah, overall, I just I think it's a really good episode. It's a great character moment for Villa. And yeah, I, I, Colin Baker. Yeah, and Colin, ba- <laughs> Colin Baker's awesome. So uh, yeah. Do you have anything else to add there, Mr. Wilson? Uh, I, not, not for me, no. Okay, should we uh, once again dip into the feedback for this, then? Let's do so. 
Okay, so from Gareth, we have... This is, if I heard right, the episode that Michael Keaton's daughter is responsible for, bringing up the fact that Villa is always a coward. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> to me, that uh, what we get here is a chance for Villa to be the hero. And when you're playing against the man playing Babe, and that's not an easy feat. <laughs> I get the feeling that I've seen him in Doctor Who, but for the life of me, I can't think where I'm sure it will come to me. Arc of Infinity. There you go. <laughs> so Villa has to pick... the pick, open a door, gotta love Avon, he knows Villa's worth to the team. He's very happy about the security system. He also falls in love with Carol. Why does the computer voice on the spaceship sound familiar to me from Hitchhikers? That's because it's Valentine Dial doing the computer voice as well. And he was deep thought. Wow, Dana gets to show off her true weapon skills. I did like her little sort of heat-seeking mind thing. <laughs> well, it did look like a little remote control car that blows up. But... <laughs> the Cybermat. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, the planet of Homeworld is looking like a stage with blue screen. <laughs> I can't imagine why that is. Uh, Villa realises the truth, he's a thief, and that's what makes him him. This is a great episode. Now I remember who it was who played Bay, but it was Colin Baker, the sixth doctor. How could I be so silly? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't meant as a slam. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that, Gareth. Uh, moving on to Stefan's feedback, we have a uh, way he opens with. <laughs> right. uh, the Doctor drops into Blake Seven, and Villa confirms that the innuendo and suggestions made in Shadow were absolutely on the money. Everyone is in no doubt oh, here what right. yeah. happened about the ship <laughs> when it's just in, <laughs> when it's just him and Carol. The pirate planet. Speaking of Carol, what was with her starting out all girl and warrior-like before slowly descending into a screaming girliness hiding behind Villa of all people? Given Servalan's antics with Jarvik, maybe all the women a woman needs is a mildly attractive man who has a command of more than two words in a sentence to start going all girly. I... That's very kind for Villa. <laughs> says, I will leave you two to ponder that. <laughs> This is the first and last time anyone will squeal for Villa to save them. Once again, Blakelight is a total dick and manages to put them in danger two weeks in a row with an e- with the excellent people skills he developed during his command. <laughs> Colin Baker is awesome here. He does look a tad weedy in that suit for a man who's supposed to be a stone-cold killer, but he makes up for it with attitude. When Villa says it's an honour, sir, and he responds with, that's what I meant, it's totally the sick <laughs> doctor popping in for a quick visit. <laughs> Speaking of the Sixth Doctor, I wonder how important the scene where he kicks, Callie kicks his ass was to him getting the part. This was what was so frustrating. Babel is supposed to be the number two enemy to the Federation after Blake, and Callie mops the floor with him. Why the, why the hell is she not going down on every mission to a planet? She even sasses Avon. Speaking of pecking orders, I can't believe that even the criminals of the Blake 7 universe have reduced to working their way up the career ladder only to get shot down by Blake who just lucked his way out onto the most powerful <laughs> ship in the galaxy. There's no justice. At least Babel goes out with a massive bang as opposed to the Six Doctor's bump on the head and a dodgy wig. Two cracking episodes this week. And thanks very much for that, Stefan. Have to agree with that. Yeah. But yes, uh, <laughs> women finding unusual men attractive. Seems to be a running scene for this episode. So <laughs> I get my kicks. There's, there's hope for us all. Yeah. If Villa can get laid, there's hope for us all. 
Well, we also have some audio feedback on this one from uh, from the orgs, and I believe they have a guest with them as well. Mm. So, uh, why don't we hear what they have to say about City at the Edge of the World? Hello. 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 So there's three of us this time. There's Peter. And Avery. And Matt. Hurrah. Matt, this is, this is the first story you've seen since the first season when we did. Pretty much. Um, yeah. we've, I've watched some that uh, Dave said to me the, a couple of weeks ago, but if I remember correctly, that was the first season episode as well. All right. Oh, was that the web? No. <laughs> good. <laughs> He's, he, he, um... No, they showed me a good one. <laughs> yes. So, yes, Jewel was the one we turned yes. back on we worked out. Yeah. That was quite <laughs> some time ago. Yeah, at least a year. <laughs> yeah. Old house, certainly. But this time it's City at the Edge of the World. I nearly said City at the Edge of Forever. Yeah, it, it's difficult not to fall into that one, isn't it? But yeah. a rather different story. Just a bit. Which I think potentially is the best episode of Blake 7 ever. You think? So. Yeah, but then I'm a big Villa fan, and obviously the, the episode spends a lot of time with Villa. You're not just a big Villa fan. Yeah? You're a big Colin Baker fan. That's true as well. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget how little he's in it, though. I mean, he's actually not in it much, but of course the scenes he's in... He, no, he yeah, is he very owns. good in this. No, he, yes, I, I do agree with that. For me, I still prefer Gambit. Babe, she said. She called me Babe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. making <laughs> up for the fact he didn't have very many scenes. Yes. yes. Making sure you'd remember him. Yes. <laughs> and his giant pink laser gun. Anyway, <laughs> what's not to like about this episode? I mean, there's, there's some... Uh, other great characters as well. You've got Sherm, who's quite fun. Yes. Carol, of course. I've just realised who he reminds me of. Yeah. Oh, now I forget on the character's name. You might be able to help me. From Harry Potter, the guy who's the caretaker in Harry Potter. Yeah, I can't remember his name either, but he does. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily the actor. It's the character, does, yeah. the look that they've they've given him. He's uh-huh. slimy and yuck. Um, All right. Yeah. Uh, we've got Valentine Dial, Black Guardian as well. Mm-hmm. Well, they're playing a goodie this time. Yes. Avon. Isn't in it as much, but he's very impressive in the scenes he's in. He knows Villa's work. Yes. Unlike Tarrant. Who's uh, a twat. Who's a twat in this, let's face it, yes. <laughs> Although he does realise it to give him his yeah. cue and apologises, which is something Blake would never have done. No, Blake yeah. would just have been a dick. Yeah. Even Callie gets some quite good lines as well. And she gets to fight. Yeah, yeah. Villa gets his end away, of course, which is nice. And then we immediately get a close-up of the most phallic part of the Liberator. (laughs) 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 They're a a train going through a tunnel, really, isn't it? Bit. <laughs> it immediately then zooms into one of the pointy bits of the front. Yes. And the only worrying thing about it really is the fact that Bill and Carol seem to inherit a planet with absolutely no la- atmosphere, literally. Yeah, <laughs> I know, but there's flowers and a little pond. Yeah, they seem to be able to breathe all right as well. Very yeah. odd. But you end up kind of wishing Villa stayed behind you, really. Well, I do. Anyway, but <laughs> I like what he says, though. Yeah, no, no, it gives a good reason not to. There's nothing but, to yeah. steal. Yeah, but you kind of want him to have the happy ending. Right. I, I just think she's better off with the fact that she's got this nice memory of him and now he's gone. Yeah, <laughs> gets to know him better and she wouldn't have had that. Yes! <laughs> yeah. I, I, kind of, I kind of, like, that's kind of how I feel. I don't know. Uh, uh, like, sort of, like, essentially saying, no, probably not your greatest mistake. Yes. You're going to do that at some point. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great last line, isn't it? Yes. Great potential for more mistakes to which she said, well, at least as long as they have good legs like her, basically. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, he's been a bit, he's always been a bit of a, a woman's man throughout, hasn't he? But here he actually does get, I mean, he's the only, I think he's the only member of the crew to get his end away so far, isn't he? So. Well, no, cause, because there was Blake's cousin who was probably about oh, yeah, when he shagged really, or something. Really, and yeah, it, we yeah, can't yeah, yeah. No, it was a bit distasteful, really. Yeah, partly because of the 18, partly because it was Blake. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. Do we get to see one of the women get their end away at all? Mm, That's what I want to know. Oh, well, we'll have to wait and see. Is Dana going to pull? We shall see. I did like her little cyber bat. Yes, yeah. that was a cool little device, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm wondering if previous sort of BBC um, art directors are sitting there going, Sink, they've had one that actually goes fast. <laughs> instead of being on a bloody screen. Yeah. It reminded me of those little mouse droids from the Death Star. Uh-huh. We're actually talking of reminding an awful lot of the architecture did remind us of the Crystal Maze. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that triangle and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also because it was a puzzle as well. I think the two, the triangular architecture and the whole puzzle thing mm. really did combine. <laughs> and then he's going on about my mother. I had a mother, you know, and Richard O'Brien used to go on yeah. about his mother all the time. <laughs> yes, Mumsy. So we want to re- pull that harmonica. And- yeah. Yeah, 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 we want to yeah. recast the Crystal Maze then with Colin Baker as the <laughs> yeah. Richard O'Brien role. Oh, yeah, I could buy that. Yeah. That's a two-minute locket. <laughs> I, I did like the idea, though, the... The, whoever wrote the story, the yeah, people behind story, it, is, yeah. a, is a good story. Yeah, very a bit bizarre, but yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's it's mainly the characters that sort of come alive. And good stuff. So yes, my favourite episode of Lake Seven. Ever. For me, that's Gambit, the clit. <laughs> the clit. Oh no, let's not go back to the clit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, thanks for that, uh, Peter, Anne-Marie, and Matt as well. Yep. For uh, getting back to us. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Mr. Dre did come and stay around mine. I, I showed him with Deb. Okay. It was one of the good episodes. <laughs> you see, Mr. Matt Dillon is going, why was I shown the web first? I could have been shown with Deb. <laughs> because I was really drunk. I, I was really drunk and wanted an episode to shout at. Uh, oh, you, you... Yeah, the option of Dawn of the Gods now. But yes, but... <laughs> Which is shit. Which is shit, yes. Uh, no, I do like the idea of the Crystal Maze. I, yeah, I like yes. I like the idea of the Crystal Maze in general. But yes. the idea of Colin Baker playing the Richard O'Brien. <laughs> oh, I love the Crystal Maze. I, I can't watch the Crystal Maze without shouting at it. It's not good really? for me. Really? I, I just lose my rag at people. <laughs> and uh, the character from Harry Potter you're trying to place is uh, Mr. Filch, I believe, the name of the caretaker. Yes, yes. I, um, me and Gillian recently spent a, a week watching all the Harry Potter films in order. <laughs> yes. fun, fun times at Fort Probert. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, if you don't like Harry Potter, obviously it's going to be shit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not the week for you. you know, I, I quite enjoy the film, so I, there you go. I quite like the film, but I've only seen four of them. I saw the first three in order, but I've seen part one of Deathly Hallows. Um, because it was on the plane going to Chicago. For uh, whatever reason, I, I, I think it's because I don't like Harry Potter the older he gets. Right. Because he's Gravity, gravy, tea. So, I don't 
I, I can't help but feel that this, this discussion is starting to show that we've run out of things to talk about. Um, I think we've exhausted pretty much all we can say on the episode. Right, in that case, let's bring on the Who Counts. Okay, for the Harvest of Kairos, we have Andrew Burt bringing the awesome as Jarvik, also brought the awesome as Valgard in Terminus. Uh, Frank Gatliff, who played Servalan's obsequious toady fella Daster, played uh, Orton in The Monster of Peladon. Anthony Gardner, who was Captain Shad, played Alvis in The Macro Terror. Michael Bryden, who was a guard. Here we go. <laughs> this is the bit you <laughs> saddle up for, isn't it? <laughs> also played a guard in State of Decay. Uh, Mr. John Cannon, who played a labourer, was, in short order, a miner in the Monster of Peladon, Elgin in the Hand of Fear, a passerby in the Talons of Wang Chiang, a trog in Underworld, a technician in the Pirate Planet, a guard in the Armageddon Factor, a guard in the Creature from the Pit, an extra in Time Flight, and Striker's Helmsman in Enlightenment, and Sir, Sir Ranulph Fitzwilliam's first servant in The King's Demons. His first servant. His first servant, right. yes. Uh, Peter Canton, who was a trooper, was a, a sea-based guard in Warriors <laughs> of the Deep. Uh, Peter Jukes, who was a labourer, was a citizen, a citizen in Full Circle. Uh, the legendary Mr. Stuart Fell, who played a labourer, has done loads, and we've gone over his back catalogue in the past. Uh, Tom Gandle, who was a labourer, was a peasant in State of Decay, and a citizen in Full Circle. You'll notice that... Uh, <laughs> Something's uh, ringing a bell here. State of Decay and Full Circle would have been filming around about the same time. So, I can't help but thinking there was... Like, you took, take off your labourer outfit, put on your peasant outfit, and off you go. Uh, the legend that is Mr. Pat Gorman played a trooper, and again, we won't go over his back catalogue. There are like 80 episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, James Haswell, who was a labourer, was a guard in the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. He was a pirate in the Space Pirates. He was a prisoner in the War Games. He was corporal champion in the Ambassadors of Death and a policeman in the Talons of Wang Chiang. Uh, Michael Joseph, who was a labourer, was a peasant in State of Decay. <laughs> Les Shannon, who was a guard, was a lynch mob member in The Gunfighters, which is an old William Hartnell story, and an extra in the S Doctor Who and the Silurians. Uh, Richard Sheiky, who was a trooper, was a policeman in The Talons of Wen Chiang. He was a guard in The Armageddon Factor and a guard in State of Decay. What? Wait, what? <laughs> Ian Sheridan, who was a labourer, was a guard in State of Decay. <laughs> and Reg Turner, who was a trooper, played a foul survivor in Genesis of the Daleks. That gives us a who count for the Harvest of Kairos of 16. Good God. I know. Which brings us to the city at the edge of the world. 
So we have Mr. Colin Baker, who played Babe and the Butcher, was Maxwell in the Ark of Infinity. And just that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right, he played the Doctor. We we have a, officially have a Doctor in the Who hey! Counts. <laughs> uh, Valentine Dial, who played Nor, was the Black Guardian, through several stories, the most notably the Black Guardian trilogy. <laughs> Uh, John J. Carney, who played Sherm, as previously mentioned, was Blood Axe in The Time Warrior. Michael Bryden, who was a guard, was a guard in State of Decay. <laughs> wow. He, he did crop up in the previous Who count, as yeah. you said. Uh, Patricia Clark, who was a woman in the city, was a Lacertian in Time of the Rani. Stuart Fell, who was a guard, <laughs> we've covered before. And Mr. Ray Lavender, who was a city guard. Right, this is from Snake Dance, who we've already established as the greatest extras credits in the world ever. Absolutely. <laughs> and in, in Snake Dance, he played a ceremonial snake holder. <laughs> it's the greatest extras credits of any piece of television ever. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have that on your CV? <laughs> I'd I'm, 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 venture to guess it's not on his CV, but it is on IMDb. <laughs> There's a Simpsons joke where they're looking like a village idiot for, um, <laughs> for, for the photo of the Renaissance Fair. Have you any experience? Yes, I played Panicky Idiot number two in the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> Sorry, we're looking for the dirt uh, idiots. <laughs> well, that brings us a who count for City at the Edge of the World of Seven. Respectable enough? Respectable enough. But, I mean, it's dwarfed by Harvest of Kairos. <laughs> yes. But I think, doesn't 16 equal our, lo our largest who count? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't. The, 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 I know the biggest one we had in the past was in the it teens. Was in the it might it might have been seventeen or something like that. I think is the is the bar that still has to be broken. As we start to uh, bring matters to their natural close, Mr. Wilson, yes, t tell us news of Earth Two dot net. Earth Two dot net. We have finally reached the pinnacle of episode five hundred for Earth Two dot net the show. Yes, I, I've not had the courage to download it yet, <laughs> purely because of its runtime. <laughs> yes, um, for those of you who don't know, it's a smidgen over, a, a bit over nine hours. But... I, I would say it's closer to a little under ten hours. <laughs> but you get so much for your nine hours, Dave. So it's it, it definitely works out. <laughs> Let's see if I can do this from memory. Well, first of all, the, um, the, I recommend all of it, but obviously it's something you can go through in stages. So. Oh, that's, that's very big news. Obviously, huge congratulations for everything that Mike's done over on Earth2.net and just having 500 episodes of Earth2.net the show. I mean, it's, a, it's a staggering landmark. Indeed. Celebrated Indeed. with a podcast of staggering length. <laughs> but a lot of people can 
contributed. So, <laughs> but if you're listening, Mr. Sims, my hat's off to you. <laughs> of course, he's listening. <laughs> I, I, know, I know he does listen. He's told. Me. <laughs> right, um, over on Geek Planet. Funny you should mention uh, C2E2 actually, because um, our uh, our roving reporter over in the states, uh, the Starship, which listeners of the Babylon Project may recognise as uh, their resident ship, the voice of their resident shipboard computer, uh, visited C2E2 and inter- interviewed a lot of cosplayers and stuff. And uh, yeah, there's a video for that on Geek- up on Geek Planet online, which. There should be a big um, advertising banner at the top of the site for it. But yeah, it's a nice little 10 minute video. Good fun. And you know, if you went to C2E2, you might recognise either yourself or or somebody you saw at the convention. Which should be... yeah, he's also done one from um, last year's Wizard WonderCon and the uh, Phoenix Comic Con. I think he's looking to go to Phoenix again this year as well. So hopefully we'll see, we'll see more from him in the future. And also, we've just started our second series of Chain Geek Action, which is uh, an interview podcast where our podcasters, a group of our podcasters, kind of interview each other in a chain. It's very much uh, ripping off the format of uh, a Radio 4 show called Chain Reaction, where one celebrity will interview another celebrity, and then that interview uh, will go on to be the interviewer yes. in the next episode. So, yeah, so we've, uh, the series has started, so we've had um, Mr. Um, when it start, uh, uh, Amory, Amory, who feeds back to us and does the the broadcast, she's interviewed Matt Dre from the Gentleman's Grindhouse, who you also heard on their feedback. Yep. Then um, Matt has interviewed uh, Mr. Jim Moon, oh, yes. the Bob's fame. Yes, yes. And the most recent episode has had Jim Moon interviewing Lee Medcalf for the Black Dog oh. podcast. I'm sure they'll discuss their love of the Green Lantern film then. Absolutely, and, yes. uh, <laughs> that won't be one rude words. Spoken with you. No, not at all. Not at all. It's all, it's all very child friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that um, uh, that's going to continue. And uh, I know other people got lined up with uh, Ian Bolton from Cinematic Dramatic, Gillian uh, from the Babylon Project, uh, Danny Davies from Disappointments, to name but a few. So yeah, if you listen to any of those podcasts or you know. In- interested in learning a bit more about uh, what make our podcasters tick, then that's there and available for you. Yeah, yeah I think that, that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode, doesn't it? I'd say so. Grenade! Don't move! It must have been a dud. Sorry about that. All we want is information. We've lost a friend of ours. We think you can tell us where to find him. That's what we think. What do you think? Okay, so join us next month when we're going to be covering another two episodes. Those episodes are going to be Children of Auron and Rumours of Death. So, until then, from me, Dave Probert. And myself, Ian Wilson. Thank you for listening to Shake and Blake.